We're in Jeremiah, and last week we got most of the way through three, but listening to the tape, I'm not sure we finished it. I've been talking about how the Bible deals with truth, and you remember last time I put up a slide by Marcus Aurelius that says, everything we think we know is opinion, and there is no way to know what is actually true. The Bible disagrees. But the way that the Bible talks about it is sufficiently different that most people don't recognize what's going on. So to recap, in Greek philosophy, words possess truth depending on how they're arranged. So if, for example, I were to make a syllogism, which is to say, all men have short hair and are handsome, he has short hair and he's handsome, therefore he's a man. As long as the propositions are true, that thing I just did expresses truth. So truth is a property of the words in the Greek way of doing things. It is not a property of words in the Hebrew way of doing things. Truth is a property of objects or things. So for example, in Hebrew I would say Bill is a true man. And what that means is that Bill acts, behaves, does things one would expect a man to do. So truth is a property of an object. The way you tell what's true is by observation and experience. So, you know, I've made a statement, Bill is a true man. I am sure he is. But I haven't observed Bill long enough to know whether that's true or not. In order to find out whether that's true, we have to watch him for a while and see how he behaves, see what he does. And at that point, we discover whether or not he is a true man. And if he is, then what I just said becomes true. If he's not, then what I've just said becomes false. So it's not properties of the words that I say, it is property of the object that I'm speaking about. Very different way of looking at things. So, if as I said, you can only determine the truth of things by experience. The corollary to that is God has created his universe so that things that are not true will eventually prove themselves not true. You notice how I said that, eventually. Because remember, the only way you can tell what's true and what's false is to observe the thing. So one of the ways we know scripture is true is because scripture says stuff and we can observe that it happened. You know, luck is not a kosher word. But when we started this congregation, we picked as our, I would guess I would say a verbal logo, Jeremiah 6, 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. The idea here is you go back to what has proven to be true and you operate in the thing that is proven to be true, and what it will do is it will enhance life. Let's go back to Jeremiah from 319 to the end of chapter. Now this is addressed to Israel. And by the way, in Jeremiah, Israel and Judah are distinguished. So when he says Israel, it's almost always talking about the northern kingdom. And of course, you all know that when Jeremiah was written, the northern kingdom had been gone for about a century. 
So the fact that he's still talking to Israel, he's talking to a kingdom that no longer exists, at least in the human world, it still exists in God's world. So verse 19, I had resolved to adopt you as my child. I gave you a desirable land, the fairest heritage of all the nations, and I thought you would surely call me father and never cease to be loyal to me. Instead, you have broken faith with me as a woman breaks faith with a paramour. O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Hark, on the bare heights is heard the suppliant weeping of the people of Israel, for they have gone a crooked way, ignoring the Lord their God. Turn back, O rebellious children, I will heal your afflictions. Here we are, we come to you, for you, O Lord, are our God. Surely futility comes from the hills, confusion from the mountains. Only through the Lord our God is there deliverance for Israel. But the shameful thing has consumed the possessions of our fathers ever since our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame. Let our disgrace cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth to this day. We have not heeded the Lord our God. I wanted to get all that done once. Now let's back up a second. In 21, the suppliant weeping of the people of Israel, for they have gone a crooked way, which is to say they have not walked according to the truth. And I went into a riff last time that you don't have to be very far in error if you're having a long trip. So if you are having a trip of a thousand miles and you're off by half a degree, by the time you get your thousand miles, you will be hundreds of miles perhaps away from where you wanted to go. Well, Israel is on a journey of thousands of years. And so if they get off over a period of time, they become way off. Now down to verse 23. Surely futility comes from the hills, confusion from the mountains. What's that? High places. In other words, pagan worship. So if you go after pagan gods, which are not true gods, true gods in the sense that I was talking about Bill as a true man, you determine after a period of time that these are not true gods, and that's what's being said here. Confusion comes from the mountain, and futility comes from the hills. As opposed to what I read you earlier in Jeremiah 6, where it says, stand at the ancient paths and look for the, the way that's tried and true, and there you will find prosperity, peace, and rest. What you find when you follow pagan gods is futility and confusion. 24. But the shameful thing has consumed the possessions of our fathers ever since our youth, their flocks and herds, their sons and daughters. The shameful thing is a Hebrew euphemism for Baal. It's a Hebrew slang term. So what it's saying is, by following this confusion that comes from the hill, the universe has told us we are wrong. How has the universe told us we are wrong? They're not prospering. In other words, when Israel was following God, they had, you know, he promised, you know, your flocks will not miscarry, there will be no barren among you, and all that kind of stuff. So you have a buildup, if you will, of wealth, and when they start following the Baals, that wealth gets consumed. And that's the universe's way of telling them the direction you're going is not right. I was talking to somebody on Shabbat whose son is having trouble, and that could be a number of people, so don't try and figure out who it is. And, you know, listening to what was going on in his life, I said, he's, he's, he's walking under a curse because he is not following the ways of God. He does not have his feet on the ancient paths. He is not following the good way. And you can see it in the physical results of his life. 
Now, that isn't to say that if you follow God's ways, every deal you do is going to come out perfect. That's not what that's saying. What it's saying, though, is over a period of time, you will increase instead of decrease. You will prosper instead of going down. If every deal just automatically went, then you'd have no room to develop any character. You've got to work through some difficulties and some afflictions to make things work. But by and large, your life should be go a whole lot better than if you don't. Unless you're going head-to-head -head against Satan's kingdom, and there's that in there too. But generally, if you're you know, just going along doing what you're supposed to do, you should generally prosper. Generally. Everybody here already said that. So this is not put your shekel in the slot and pull the lamb's tail and out comes a whole bunch. That's not what we're talking about. What he's talking about here is a period of, in this case, centuries, where Israel for a period of time was built up by following the Lord, and then over a long period of time by not following the Lord, they gradually have gone into decline, so everything is eventually consumed. And I will gently suggest that's what we're observing in the United States right now. Over a period of a couple hundred years, this nation did a fair job of following God's ways. And we prospered. We became very wealthy, very rich. What we are entered into now is a period where we're cannibalizing that wealth in order to follow confusion. Just as happened to northern Israel, what will eventually happen is the leaky cistern will in fact run dry and will die of thirst. So that's what is being talked about here. Chapter 4. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, if you return to me, if you remove your abominations from my presence and do not waver and swear as the Lord lives in sincerity, justice, and righteousness, nations shall bless themselves by you and praise themselves by you. So what God is saying is, even though you have been gone for a hundred years, if in your exile you turn and return back to me, I will set things up so that nations bless themselves by you as I said they would to Abraham. Remember the promise to Abraham? By you all the nations will be blessed. And what he's saying is that promise is still operative, but you guys got to turn away from the stuff that you're following and instead follow me. And again, it's not going to be instantaneous, just like getting out there wasn't instantaneous. It'll be a process. All right, now we're going to switch audiences. Verse 3. For thus said the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Now notice before we were talking to Israel, now we're talking to Judah and Jerusalem. They are still in the land at this point. Break up the untilled ground and do not sow among thorns. Open your heart to the Lord. Circumcise your heart, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem lest my wrath break forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your wicked acts. Again, you all remember in Deuteronomy, when we were going through the Torah, there's two circumcisions of the heart. The first circumcision of the heart is one you do. The idea of circumcising your heart and following after God as best you can, he will then respond and prosper you. If, however, you harden your heart, and go after abominations, then what will happen is what's happened in the northern kingdom and what's about to happen to the southern kingdom. But even at this point, and we'll see in a minute, he's going to say, you know, I got an empire chucked up up there, and, and they're on their way. Even then, there is time to repent. And that's what this next riff is going to be, that there's still time to repent, even though the Babylonians 
are marching in your direction as we speak. So let's break up the untilled ground and do not sow among the thorns. What does that sound like to you? Yeshua echoes this when he gives us the parable of the sower. Break up the untilled ground. You know, that's the seed that is cast by the way and sowing among thorns. Both of those sowings of seed will not produce a harvest. I'm down to verse 5. Proclaim in Judah, announce in Jerusalem, and say, Blow the horn in the land, shout aloud, and say, Assemble, and let us go into the fortified cities. Let us set up a signpost to Zion, take refuge, do not delay, for I bring evil from the north and a great disaster. So what he's saying here is, I have got this empire all chucked up. They're marching from Babylon this way. So you guys, A, better get into the cities, and B, you better start repenting because they're on the way. It can still be turned off, but that depends on you, not me, is what God's saying. Seven, the lion has come up from his thicket. The destroyer of nations is set out, has departed from his place to make your land a desolation. Your cities shall be ruined without inhabitants. For this put on sackcloth, mourn and wail, for the blazing anger of the Lord has not turned away from us. And in that day, declares the Lord, the mind of the king and the mind of the nobles shall fail. The priests shall be appalled, and the prophets shall stand aghast. And I said, Ah, oh, Lord God, surely you have deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, It shall be well with you, yet the sword threatens the very life. All right, that's going to take some unpacking. First off, the mind of the king, the mind of the nobles, and the priests, that's the leadership. They're not going to be able to do anything. And they're going to stand there looking at all these hairy Babylonians just gobsmacked because they aren't going to have anything to say. Now, there's two translations in verse 10. And I said, ah, God, in the Septuagint it is, and they said. Everybody know what the Septuagint is? Anybody not? The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, that was written by a number of rabbis in the third century before Christ. So by that time, Hebrew was no longer a viable language in Israel. So nobody could read the Bible. So what they did is they had 70 rabbis sit down and translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek so that the common people could read them. There are differences between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. And this is one of them. So the Septuagint says, that the people are saying, God, you've lied to us. The Masoretic text says, Jeremiah is saying, you have lied. I'm going to go with the Septuagint because it makes more sense to what follows. So the Septuagint says, and they shall say, Lord God, surely you have deceived this people in Jerusalem saying, it shall be well with you, yet the sword threatens the very life. Now, in that reading, which I think is correct, because remember back in Deuteronomy, when we have the Song of Moses, and Moses says, the time is going to come when you're going to say, God, none of this stuff would have happened if you'd been with us. And what I'm telling you is the reason he isn't with you is because you have gone after the balls, you've gone into idolatry, you've gone into wickedness, and yeah, he's not with you, and yeah, he's not listening to your prayer. But what you're going to say is, God, if you'd only been here, it'd been Okay. So that follows with the Septuagint translation. So what you have now is you have this army of Babylonians heading for them, and they say, God, 
you've deceived us. You said everything was going to be okay. And God didn't say everything is going to be okay. He said everything's going to be okay if you follow my ways. These people were not stupid. In fact, they're just like us. But how many of us in our churches go in and say, God, you promised to bless us when they are, in fact, not walking after God's ways. They're not walking in the truth. They're walking in the truth as they understand it. I'm not saying they're in rebellion. I'm not saying that they've thumbed their nose at God and turned their back on him and said, you know, heck with this, I'm going to do whatever I want. They think they're following God, but what they are following is confusion. Remember, I said a small error early in your trip, by the time you get a long way out, can really have you off. And what I'm suggesting to you is most of the body of believers have got stuff in their belief in their doctrine that is wrong enough that by 2,000 years later, some of them are seriously off in the weeds even though they are sincerely devout. But what I am saying to you is biblical truth is mirrored in the world. And so if you are following something that is not biblical truth as defined by God himself, then in some respect you're in error, and that's going to have consequences no matter what your intentions are. Most prosperous people who are not thieves, you notice how I said that, most prosperous people who are not thieves are in fact following God's Torah, even though they don't follow God. They get married and don't have children with random guys and gals. They stay married. They get an education. They get a job. They work at that job and they get slow promotions and they accumulate wealth gradually. That's Torah. You don't have to believe in God to have that work for you. It's great if you do believe in God, but it's still going to work whether you do or not. God's universe will do what God's universe is going to do regardless of what you think about it. And as we find things in our lives that are not behaving the way we think they ought to behave, we are looking at those as signals that, hmm, perhaps there's something going on here that I have got in error and I need to make a correction. You know, one of my favorite sayings is, God is not who you think he is. God is who he says he is. And lots of people don't know who God says he is. They believe in a God as they think he is. And I'm not saying that they're in rebellion. I'm not saying that they're out there sticking their finger in God's eye or anything like that. I'm just saying, for whatever reason, they have a conception of God that does not match reality. And if their conception of God does not match reality, guess who's going to win? What Jeremiah is saying in these speeches that he gives is this is how to tell what reality is. And where your concept of things doesn't match with reality, your concept is going to go down. And like a leaky cistern, it may take a while before it goes down. But it will. And that's what he's saying in these vignettes. Anyway, verse 10. And they shall say, Lord God, surely you have deceived us. Deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, it will be well with you. Yet the sword threatens the very life. So what they're saying is, my God would not have us up to our hips and Babylonians. And what God is saying, yeah, your God wouldn't. But that isn't God. 
So what I'm saying is they have got this wrong conception of the nature of God, and they are crying out in anger, saying that God has deceived them, when it isn't God that's done the deceiving. Verse 11, At that time it shall be said concerning this people in Jerusalem, The conduct of my poor people is like searing wind from the bare heights of the desert. It will not serve to winnow or fan. A full blast from them comes against me. Now I in turn will bring charges against them. All right, now this searing wind from the bare heights of the desert that does not winnow or fan, what that's saying is hot air. Bloviating is what we would call it today. They are crying out against God, and the hot air that they're spewing is of no use. You can't winnow grain with it. Everybody knows how you winnow grain. You thresh it, and then you throw it up in the breeze, and the breeze carries the chaff away, and the grain drops. This stuff isn't even good for winnowing grain. And it, it, it won't fan, which is to say it won't cool you. So the full blast from them against me, now I will turn and bring charges against them. So in other words, they've been talking now, I'm going to talk, says God. Lo, he ascends like clouds, his chariots are like a whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles, woe to us, we are ruined. Wash your heart clean of wickedness, O Jerusalem, that you may be rescued. How long will you harbor within you your evil designs? This lo, he ascends like clouds, who's that talking about? The Babylonians. They are coming and they are irresistible. Yet he says, wash your heart clean of wickedness, that you may be rescued there's still time. And how long will you harbor within you your evil designs? Hark, one proclaims from Dan. Dan, as you should know, is the very topmost part of Israel, right up against Lebanon. So when the Babylonians are coming down, that's where they hit first, is Dan. Hark, one proclaims from Dan and announces calamity from Mount Ephraim. Okay, now they're coming down. Dan, Mount Ephraim. So now they're in the central hill country. Tell the nations, Here they are, announced concerning Jerusalem. Watchers are coming from a distant land. They raise their voices against the towns of Judah. Like guards of fields, they surround her on every side, for she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. They're coming down, and they're going to sweep everything before them, and they're going to fetch up in front of Jerusalem. 18. Your conduct and your acts have brought this upon you. This is your bitter punishment. It pierces your very heart. Oh, my suffering, my suffering, how I writhe. Oh, the walls of my heart, my heart moans within me. I cannot be silent, for I hear the blare of horns, alarms of war. Who is I here? Jeremiah or God, I think, are both equally good answers. In other words, this is happening, but I really don't want it to. And that goes both for God and for Jeremiah. Neither one of them wants this to be happening. That's why I say you can sort of see it either way. 20. Disaster overtakes disaster, for all the land has been ravaged. Suddenly my tents have been ravaged. In a moment my tent cloths, how long must I see standards and the blare of horns? For my people are stupid. They give me no heed. They are foolish children. They are not intelligent. They are clever at doing wrong, but unable to do right. I'm going to pause there a minute. I really like, I mean, I really don't like it, but I really like that phrase. They are clever at doing wrong. We call it intellectuals. We have people who are very clever. They have high IQs, and they turn their cleverness to doing wrong 
instead of turning their cleverness to doing right. And the problem is, those are the people who are supposed to be our musicians. They're supposed to be our storytellers. They're supposed to be the ones that keep our history for us. They're supposed to be our guides and our leaders, and they are like this pack of blackbirds that are just going like this, and they are clever at doing evil. That's why we're in the mess we're in. And Jeremiah will say that in just a minute. 23. I look at the earth. It is unformed and void. At the skies and their light is gone. I look at the mountains. They are quaking. And all the hills are rocking. I look. No man is left. And all the birds of the sky have fled. I look. The farmland is desert. And all its towns are in ruin. Because of the Lord. Because of his blazing anger. For thus says the Lord. The whole land shall be desolate but I will not make an end of it. For this the earth mourns, and skies are dark above, because I have spoken, I have planned, and I will not relent or turn back from it. Now, voice changes in this paragraph. Part of the time it's Jeremiah speaking, part of the time it's God speaking. But look at this beginning. I look at the earth, it was unformed and void, at the skies and their light is gone. What does that remind you of? Doesn't that read like Genesis 1? In the beginning, the earth was without form and void, no light. I think this is very much an echo of creation. I started here with this intent, and look at what you've done. We're back to where I started. I don't know whether we'll get to lamentation or not. The first phrase of lamentation starts with aika. And what that means in Hebrew is, how could this happen? It's a plaintive, sorrowful cry. You know, how could this happen? How could this disaster have happened? And it, it's very much in that same, same vein. 29. At the shout of horsemen and bowmen, the whole city flees. They enter the thickets. They clamber up the rocks. The whole city is deserted. Not a man remains there. And you who are doomed to ruin, what do you accomplish by wearing crimson, by decking yourself in jewels of gold, by enlarging your eyes with coal? You beautify yourself in vain. Lovers despise you. They seek your life. One of the things that God says is that you have played the prostitute with every nation that has come through here. And you've decked yourself out in your finery. You've made yourself attractive. And you have gone after their gods. And what he's saying here is, you're trying to do that again as these Babylonians are coming, and it isn't going to work this time. You are like a lady of the night who is past her prime and you are no longer interesting. That's basically what he's saying. 31. I hear a voice as of one in travail, anguish as of a woman bearing her first child. The voice of fair Zion, panting, stretching out her hands, alas for me, I faint before the killers. Chapter 5. Roam the streets of Jerusalem, search its squares, look about and take note. You will not find a man there is none who acts justly, who seeks integrity, that I should pardon her. Now what should that remind you of? Sodom and Gomorrah. Because remember when God was sending his angels down to whack Sodom? He does lunch with Abraham first, right? And he tells Abraham what he's going to do. And Abraham says, oh God, if there are 50 righteous men down there, are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? Well, no, if there are 50, I won't do it. And so Abraham works God down to ten. Well, now it's one. And he says, if you can find one man in Jerusalem who acts justly and seeks integrity, two things. One, you've got to do justice. 
And what does doing justice mean? You judge according to God's word. You shall not show partiality to the poor, nor shall, nor shall you show partiality to the rich. You shall look after the interests of the poor, the fatherless, and the widow, because they have none to defend them. That's the biblical definition of justice. So the first thing he wants to find is one man that does justice, and the second one who seeks integrity or truth. So if he can find a man who will do justice and seek the truth, I will pardon her. And of course, he can't find one. Verse 2, even when they say, as the Lord lives, they are sure to be swearing falsely. Remember back up when he was talking to Israel. He said, if you'll just say, as the Lord lives and mean it, I'll bring you back. What he's saying here is, everybody says, as the Lord lives, but none of them means it. Everybody says, praise God, but nobody means it. So what they're doing is swearing falsely, even though they are swearing in the name of the Lord, as they are supposed to do. Verse 3, O Lord, your eyes look for integrity. You have struck them, but they sensed no pain. You have consumed them, but they would accept no discipline. They made their faces harder than rock. They refused to turn back. What he's saying is, God, you're looking for somebody with integrity. There aren't any. You have struck them, but they sense no pain. Go back to the rift that I had at the beginning of the hour. I will guarantee you that you could go into any church in Christendom and there are people living under curses that don't know it because they don't know the Torah. And the Torah tells you what a curse is. Being in debt is a curse. It's not borrowing money for six months to start a business. What it is is in chronic debt, which is what the United States operates. That's a curse. Biblical definition thereof. And you find people that are in churches that are just proud of being able to shuffle credit cards and you know, move balances from one to the other and, and get second mortgages on their home. And boy, we're still, we're still, you know, they're operating under a curse and they don't know it. So you have struck them, but they sensed no pain. In other words, they are living under curses, but they don't know it. They don't recognize the hand of God upon them. Because God, back in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus, says, as you go astray, these things are going to start to happen to you. Those are curses. They are meant to turn you around. They are meant to get your attention. And so what Jeremiah is saying is, is you struck them, just like you said you would, but they don't feel it because... They don't recognize what's happening to them. God has struck them as he said he would when they went astray and they don't feel the pain because they don't know what it's coming from. They just think that's the way life is. They just think the way life is is, you know, your daughter goes out and shacks up and gets knocked up. You've got four or five credit cards that you're shuffling around. Your kids don't listen to you. That's just life. You have consumed them, but they would accept no discipline. Their substance is wasting away, but they won't accept the discipline and turn. Verse 4, then I thought, these are just poor folk. They act foolishly, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the rules of their God. So what he's saying is, ah, this is, must be just the common people, the ones that are not instructed, the ones that don't understand the Torah. So I will go to the wealthy and speak to them. Surely they know the way of the Lord, the rules of their God, but they as well had broken the yoke, had snapped the bonds. T. 
typically people who are wealthy either have parents that have done well or have done well at some honest endeavor themselves. And we're not talking about Chicago politicians here. We're talking about people who actually produce something and do well. What he's saying here is that those people are consuming the wealth that was passed down to them. Not necessarily through their family, but societally as well. If you look in Washington, you find lots and lots of politicians who are sons of politicians. You go to Hollywood, you find lots and lots of actors and actresses who are sons of actors and actresses. Years ago, those people actually worked hard. They don't anymore. That's what's being said here. Six, therefore the lion of the forest strikes them down. The wolf of the desert ravages them. A leopard lies in wait by their towns. Whoever leaves them will be torn in pieces. For their transgressions are many, their rebellious acts unnumbered. And again, when we're talking about lions and wolves and stuff, remember we got this Babylonian army idling out there. That's what we're talking about. Why should I forgive you? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by no gods. That is to say, by sworn by things that are not gods. When I fed them their fill, they committed adultery and went trooping to a harlot's house. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing at another's wife. Shall I not punish such deeds, says the Lord? The Bible says, love your neighbor, and it has devolved into love your neighbor's wife. No, again, I'm serious. That's, that's what's being said there. So verse 9. Shall I not punish such deeds, says the Lord? Shall I not bring retribution on a nation such as this? Go up among their vines and destroy. Lop off their trailing branches, for they are not of the Lord, but do not make an end. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have betrayed me, declares the Lord. What he's saying is, go out there and destroy their substance. Their vines and, and the trailing branches talks about destroying the agricultural base of the country, which is to say, send them into poverty. Remember I've said in Midrash several times that there are three levels of the Bible. The first level is law. And that says that if you drop something from here, it's going to hit the ground. If you commit adultery with your neighbor's wife, there's going to be consequences. You know, moral, physical, they're all the same. It's simply a law. Drive past a red octagonal sign at 50 miles an hour, you're liable either to have an accident or to get thrown in jail. Nothing personal. It's just those are the rules of the universe. The second level is covenant. And that's where God has taken the nation Israel and has brought them out of all the other nations and has made a covenant with them. And when you break covenant, what you are doing is you are breaking a trust between two people. So when Israel breaks God's covenant by committing adultery with other gods, it no longer is impersonal, it's now personal. So if a Jew in Israel goes out and steals something, that's not a breach of the covenant. That's a breach of law. And there will be consequences for that because that's the way the world is set up. But that's different than going out there and worshiping another god and saying, I don't want to have anything more to do with you, God. i got a better deal over here. That's a breach of covenant, and that becomes personal. And then the third level is Torah. And that level is parent to child. Torah means teaching and instruction. And there, the relationship is still personal, but it's much more intimate than covenant. And there, when you break 
the teaching and instruction of your parent, there is also punishment. But notice he says over and over, but do not make an end. In other words, we've got this two-year-old who is in rebellion, and we are going to get his attention one way or the other, but he is still my child, and we are not going to kill him. So your comment that this is personal with God is absolutely correct, because what he's dealing with is dealing with a breach of covenant. And that's personal. That's different from just this abstract, you ain't doing right. That's law. And that's impersonal. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.